Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having a lot of fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you who are considering supporting my Algonquin Park storytelling efforts by becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron or buying some merch. As I've mentioned before, doing either is easy. Just click on the Become a Patron badge or the Gifts and Gear button at the top of my Algonquin Park Heritage website or on my Podbean podcast show page. There are four different patron support levels, each with lots of goodies. My merch collection has over 30 items from coffee cups to water bottles, journals to t-shirts. I also want to give a huge shout out and virtual hug to Patrick Muldowan at the Wildlife Research Station, who's been an incredible partner for these series of episodes. Not only did he make sure I was getting all of my explanations right, or at least mostly right, He was also incredibly patient with my, at times, really dumb questions and scientific term translation requests. I realize that my way of telling stories can be a bit trying, even for the most sympathetic of researchers. I'm deeply indebted. Now for this episode, in addition to my own research for my books, most of the content comes from a number of key sources. These include Rory Mackay's 2018 Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, Norm Quinn's 2002 Algonquin Wildlife Lessons in Survival, George Warecki's recent books on both J.R. Diamond from 2019 and Douglas Pimlot, uh, which was just published in 2021, George Garland's 1989 Glimpses of Algonquin, various articles in the Best of the Raven newsletters, volumes 1 to 3, as well as those from 2010 to 2021 that are available online, and of course the Wildlife Research Station's official website and selected published research papers and abstracts. As you'll recall, episode 27 was all about the early days of the Algonquin interpretive programs. This got me to thinking about Algonquin wildlife and how easy it is to see so much of it these days, what with pretty decent cameras and video that are now embedded in our phones. But it was learning about Doug Davies, a research scientist who worked out of the Wildlife Research Station in the 1940s, and even has a bog named after him, that really grabbed my attention. He was studying black flies and their color preferences, amongst other things, which I'll share the details of a little later. Now, the Wildlife Research Station's been around a lot longer than I have. But because it's not a place that the public can generally visit, like the Visitor Center or the Algonquin Park Logging Museum, most of us don't really know very much about it. And I've come to realize that's a big mistake. Some of my collective lack of attention to it changed in the summer of 2009 when the Wildlife Research Station, the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research, and the Friends of Algonquin sponsored the first Algonquin Park Researcher Day event. That year, over 300 people came to the Lake of Two Rivers East Beach Pavilion to meet some of the scientists and students who were involved with ongoing long-term and short-term research projects. Since then, the one-day event has attracted well over 700 people who come to hobnob and get to know various scientists and park biologists and their projects and have the opportunity to ask all sorts of questions. On my website are some of the pictures courtesy of Rory Mackay of one such event. In the next few episodes, I'll share the history of some of the people and the research behind the Wildlife Research Station, and a few interesting outcomes from the multitude of research that's been conducted out of there since its inception in 1944. Then I'll do the same kind of overview of the Harkness Laboratory of Fisheries Research. After that, I thought it would be fun to take a deep dive into a few topics that have caught my attention, including wolves, Canada jays, invasive species, climate change, salamanders, And of course, what did really happen to smoke tea in Canoe Lakes when the Gilmore brothers built Tea Lake Dam? But to kick things off, let's begin with some Algonquin wildlife trivia. So that you can be sure to have some conversation starters for your next dinner party or work Zoom event. Did you know that there has never in modern history been a confirmed case of a fatal wild wolf attack 
on a person in North America. Great blue herons are generally born inept in the art of spearing frogs, and those that don't learn quickly after leaving the nest usually die of starvation. Bears seem to know instinctively without climbing them which beech trees in the fall have the most beech nuts and don't bother with the others. Many migrating birds return to stake out a territory in the exact same spot every year, even after the individual birds involved may have died, and even will use the exact same singing perch. Moose not only know how to swim, but in water can dive and hold their breath for up to a minute, whilst feeding on aquatic plants at the bottom. And lastly, snapping turtles actually don't snap. They can grow up to 40 pounds in weight and live as long as 100 years. Now who would have known that? Feel free to post the results of your dinner party or Zoom encounters on my Algonquin Park Heritage Facebook page so we can all have a few laughs at what I expect will be some pretty amusing responses. Now back to our story of the Wildlife Research Station. To provide some context, as, as I've shared before, it was Park Superintendent Frank McDougall who was the force behind much of the early efforts to increase public awareness of the importance of ecology and to do so on a scientific basis. From 1931 to 1941, he was the Algonquin Park Superintendent and then went on to become the Deputy Minister for the Department of Lands and Forests, a role that he held for many years. Influenced by J.R. Diamond and others, McDougall laid much of the groundwork for what are today many, many Algonquin-defining moments for so many park visitors. It was he who planted the original seeds, pun intended, for wildlife and fisheries research in Algonquin Park. It was McDougall who hired Duncan McLulick as Algonquin's first biologist and naturalist in 1938. McDougall also was the one to encourage J.R. Diamond, professor of zoology at the University of Toronto, to come and study the fish in Cache Lake. This I'll talk about in more detail in a future episode about the Harkness Laboratory for Fisheries Research on Lake Opiongo. Diamond's influence was significant because he introduced to McDougall a new philosophy about the natural world that was blossoming in the 1930s. This led not to just the establishment of nature trails, conducted walks in the museum at Found Lake, but also to recognize the importance of educating the public based on the results of scientific inquiry. According to Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, McDougall was talking about the importance of wildlife research as early as 1931, noting in one of his reports that, quote, for game studies of authority on questions of game habits and plentitude, special studies will be necessary. Don't you just love the elegance and the way folks spoke English in those days? I sure do. But before we get to how he did that, I wanted to share a few stories about the role that McDougall played in ensuring that true wilderness nature reserves were established inside the park that we now take for granted. Speculation has it that J.R. Diamond and likely others from the University of Toronto's zoology department played an influential role in persuading McDougall to have certain lands, as one of the originating scientists, Dr. David Fowle, said in 1977, designated and cut off from other uses, like canoe trips and logging, in order that long-term ecological studies could be done without fear of them being disturbed by anything else. The first story comes from George Warecki's 2019 book on J.R. Diamond that provided some interesting insight into McDougall's character. Apparently, Duncan McLulick, whom I just mentioned, was in 1938 working on a fish parasite survey. He'd heard that some majestic pine could be seen along the Crow River. One September, on a windy, rainy Saturday, he and his father saw a stand of old white pine mixed with hardwoods just south of the river. One tree, McClulick said, was some 145 feet high, and its shoulder height was wider than three spans of our outstretched arms. Concerned that if found these trees were going to be cut down, he spoke to McDougall to set aside this land, and when there was no response, tried to interest the Federation of Ontario Naturalists in buying the land, or at least some of it, 
Even one acre would have protected four to six trees. Alas, it was considered too small an area to be an appropriate nature reserve. Unbeknownst to all, and what McClulloch didn't find out until much later, like 30 years later, was that McDougall, without saying anything, had made a little reservation of about a dozen trees on top of a rocky bluff that you can see from five miles down the river. That group of trees you can go visit today if you want. On the Algonquin Park canoe route map, take a look at Big Crow Lake, as there's a 1.5-kilometer trail that runs from the dam that can be found there. My son Taylor, friend Allison, and I did the trek about a decade ago. It was the most incredible stand of trees that I've ever seen. The second story is that in 1940, McDougall again withdrew from the timber license of the J.R. Booth Company and Gillies Brothers two small areas of virgin pine forest for educational and scientific reasons on the east arm of Lake Opiongo and on Dixon Lake. Though this effort only provided protection for about a hundred trees, it did set a precedent. A few years later, in June 1944, the provincial government set aside 30 square miles, which is about 7,700 hectares, of Algonquin Park in Canispe and McLaughlin Townships as a wilderness area that would be closed to logging, fishing, mining, cottages, resorts, and public travel. This was a preview to policies that later were embedded in the Algonquin Park Master Plan of 1974. The last story involves Swan Lake on the park's west side. Apparently in 1950, 2,800 acres was reserved for research into the silviculture characteristics of the yellow birch and sugar maple trees. Now for those unaware, silviculture is the study of everything related to the growing and cultivation of trees. This is not only to ensure their preservation, but also to ensure the use of best practices in forest management for the ongoing lumbering industry. As discussed in a previous episode, yellow birch had been harvested in Algonquin since 1920, but demand for it soared during World War II because of its use in aircraft construction. Now it turns out that yellow birch has a very poor regeneration rate across Ontario's south-central forest region, so foresters wanted to find out why. Their investigations included taking a look into seed supply and viability, seed bed conditions, and seedling height growth, harvest methods, deer browsing, and the impacts of prescribed burning. What was discovered was that selective logging of yellow birch had caused some interesting problems. The first was that the species love sun, and the ones that were left were easily crowded out by faster-growing overstory of maples, beeches, and conifers that were left. In addition, the remaining trees would leave a thick mat of leaves on the ground each fall, which meant that the small seeds of a yellow birch weren't able to reach the forest floor to germinate. And when they did, the young saplings were quickly eaten by deer and moose that would wander by. Like white pine, the fire suppression efforts also didn't help. There seems to have been a management plan for the reserve published in 2005, but soon after, use of it was shut down. However, during its existence, the Swan Lake Forest Research Reserve spawned over 250 papers, reports, and other technical bulletins, and technology transfer reports in whole or in part as a result of research that had taken place there. As we all know now, there are a number of wilderness zones in the park that have been set aside and are not to be touched. But back to our story about the origins of the Wildlife Research Station. In 1934, C.D.H. Clark, a student of J.R. Diamond, started to study ruffed grouse, known as partridge to some, at a field lab set up at Brulee Lake. I'm not sure why these guys didn't seem to use their first names and always referred to each other by their initials, but J.R. Booth did the same thing, so I presume it must have been a thing in those days. But anyway, Clark's research interest was in investigating diseases impacting these birds and theorized that a malarial blood parasite was a contributing factor to fluctuations in the grouse populations. Later, his hypothesis was proved not to be true, but it was a contributing starting point for all kinds of related studies. Also, in 1937, Duncan McClulloch published a study of the snowshoe hare population, which also triggered lots of interest. 
Now, to be factually correct, 1934 wasn't the first time that forest studies had been undertaken in the park. In 1908, a group from the University of Toronto established a field camp to study logging methods around Burnt Root Lake, and from 1925 to 1935, Acre was also used as a University of Toronto research base. However, it was the Lake Opiongo Fisheries research successes that convinced McDougall to encourage Clark and others to set up a proper wildlife research station. This institution would complement the Harkness Fisheries Lab by instead studying terrestrial, i.e. land-based ecosystems and wildlife, instead, of course, the aquatics and fisheries that Harkness does. During the summer of 1945-46, this vision became a reality. The original site selected was used for the first two years, and it was on the south side of the Madawaska River at the eastern end of Lake of Two Rivers Airfield, in the old bunkhouse buildings that had been abandoned by the McRae Sawmill Camp. Here, scientists made an effort at repairing some of the old buildings for their use and set up some tents. As Rory Mackay shared in his book, Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, Dr. Murray Fallis, one of those first researchers, recalled that the first camp at the wildlife research area as a series of tents with tent flies over top and another tent was set up for the lab. There was also a cooking tent, which was the first structure to be replaced with a wooden building. Conducting scientific research there was not easy. The scientists were living in tents with the usual wet season that you find in June in Algonquin Park and trying to look through microscopes which would cloud up when it was cold. There was none of the business of nine to five. It was from morning till dusk, and everyone entered into great enthusiasm in trying to study the biology of the area. Today, the Wildlife Research Station sits on the shores of Lake Sasajiwan, which is located at the south end of an expansive wilderness zone that is representative of the diversity found in the Great Lake St. Lawrence Forest region. According to their website, the vision of the Wildlife Research Station is to be a leader in wildlife research and experiential learning with a mission to inspire, educate, and conserve. And by that they mean to inspire environmental stewardship, a community of collaboration, and a connection with nature through educational workshops, public events, and social media. To educate scientists, the public, and policymakers by facilitating peer-reviewed publications, producing research reports, and hosting field courses and workshops. And lastly, to conserve biodiversity, ecological integrity, and a culture of field-based learning by providing facilities and logistical support for research projects with an emphasis on long-term ecological studies. Today, there are a small number of rustic red and white two-person cabins for visiting researchers, another for the year-round station manager, and four additional cabins that can support larger occupancy. In addition, there are three lab spaces, a garage, a teaching portable, as well as a cookhouse dining facility with long oil cloth covered tables with benches for seats and basic bathroom facilities. In the past, there were several animal holding facilities and outdoor pens for moose, deer, and at one time even wolves, with observation booths, handling chutes, way scales, and a storage shed. Research support is minimalist, with researchers expected to bring their own equipment. As Dr. Roy Anderson wrote in his musings about the wildlife research station that can be found in George Garland's Glimpses of Algonquin, and I quote, Everything about the Wildlife Research Station, with its assortment of buildings and place names, attested to its compatibility with the environment. Deer browsed unconcernedly between the buildings. Hares thumped and gambled nocturnally between and underneath the cabins. Squirrels and chipmunks scampered over the buildings and sapsuckers hammered the roofs of the cabins to the consternation of the weary inhabitants. Barn swallows nested under the eaves of the buildings and kingbirds and crackles occupied stumps left by long-departed loggers. One funny story about the red squirrels in those days comes from Richard Miller's memoir of his time at the fisheries lab in the late 1930s. Inside the little cottage where he and his wife were living at Lake Opiongo, 
A mama red squirrel had made her home in the space behind the wallboard where it connected to the roof rafters. As he wrote, She grew quite accustomed to our presence, and when her babies had opened their eyes and begun exploring the world around them, she used to lead them out onto the rafters. The youngsters' favorite rafters ran directly above the dining table. During meals, they were a never-failing source of amusement as they chased one another back and forth, round and round. As they grew larger and bolder, they often ran across the underside of the rafter, clinging with their claws hooked over the upper edge. Inevitably, one of them fell one day at breakfast time, landing in the open four-pound pail of strawberry jam. Here he was, stuck with his legs waving impotently over the rim of the tin, easing his feelings in a torrent of hysterical chattering. After release, he was avidly licked over by all his brothers and sisters, for squirrels have a very sweet tooth. Unless you are familiar, you'd have no idea that for over 75 years, these cabins have been the summer homes of generation after generation of enthusiastic biologists committed to moving forward, and I quote, excellence in wildlife biology and conservation, both strategically and tactically. Now, what is meant by that is a lot like leaseholders who pass along their bits of Algonquin to their children along with their wisdom and teach them a set of skills and Algonquin values. So have a legion of biologists and naturalists done this very same thing. It's one of the few research institutions in the world that has a number of long-term studies that are still works in progress. One, for example, on small mammals, has been perpetuated for over 70 years. The work has been handed over from professor to professor over the years that in turn recruit students who bring their own perspectives and interests. This enables the research to be continually refreshed, as I said, generation after generation. Now you may be wondering, well, what's the fuss about long-term studies? Well, long-term studies matter because they create an important baseline for maintaining biodiversity, supporting ecological integrity, predicting future change, and they provide the knowledge for evidence-based policy and decision-making in the management of the ecosystems in the parks. They're also critical for formulating and testing various theories about the lives of existing flora, such as trees, and fauna, such as turtles, as well as slow ecological phenomena such as forest maturation and species succession. Research during the early years from 1944 to about 1960 was focused on understanding the biology of so-called game animals, such as bear, moose, and grouse, because that's what the government had a vested interest in managing. The idea then was that if the species was, quote, useful to humans, unquote, it was, quote, worthwhile studying, unquote. Over time, the focus of the research gradually shifted to be more broadly concerned with themes of ecology, such as the relationship of organisms to each other and their physical environment, evolutionary biology, environmental change, and conservation. Today, there's a pretty good balance between applied, theoretical, and curiosity-driven science. It's fun, however, to take a look at the names of some of the studies in the various publications that can be found on the Wildlife Research Station website. Though it currently only goes to 2013, this list is being updated. I encourage everyone to go and take a look, as it's quite fascinating the kinds of things that have been studied over the years. As Patrick Muldowan wrote in a 2019 edition of The Raven, celebrating the station's 70th anniversary, this outdoor lab has been host to great discoveries about Algonquin's natural world, from flies to flying squirrels, from mice to meningeal worms, shrews to salamanders and songbirds, turtles to trees, and woodpeckers to wolves. I think it's time for a short musical interlude. Here's Ian Tamblin performing Wood Smoke and Oranges from his Superior Spirit and Light album. Thank you. 
By wood smoking oranges, path of old canoe, I would course the inland ocean to be back to you. No matter where I go to, it's always home again to the rugged northern shore and the days of sun and wind in the land of the silver birch. Cry of the There's something about this country, it's a part of me and you. We nosed her in by Pakistan, out for 15 days, to set paddle and the spirit at the mercy of the waves. The Wanagans were loaded down and a gift left on the shore, for it's best that we surrender to the rugged northern shore in the land of the silver birch cry of the loon there's something about this country it's a part of me and you in the land of the silver birch cry of the loon there's something about this country it's a part of me and you of old woman day where we fought against the backswell and then we're on our way talk to you of spirits by the vision pits we saw them walk the agate beaches of the mighty garden toir in the land of the silver birch cry of the moon there's something about this country it's a part of me Turn my back upon these things I tried to deny The coastline of my dreams But it turns me by and by It tossed the mighty ship around It smashed the lighthouse door Sent shivers up my spine The rugged northern shore In the land of the silver birch Cry of the lone There's something about this country it's a part of me and you In the land of the silver birch Cry of the loon There's something about this country It's a part of me and you By wood smoke and oranges Path of old canoe I would course the inland ocean To be back to you No matter where I go to it's always home again to the rugged northern shore and the days of sun and wind. Artist Robert Bateman spent three summers there in 1947 to 1948 as a casual laborer. That he said in his 2015 autobiography called Life Sketches became a life-changing experience. Though he said later that much of what he did was considered grunt work, such as the making of road repairs, digging garbage pits, and helping with the dishes, his description of Jack Pigeon from Cash Lake, who was the resident cook at the time, had me in stitches. And I quote, Our cook, a happy-go-lucky Frenchman, didn't believe in washing dishes in the traditional way. He would simply drop all the plates and utensils and pots into a huge galvanized tub, 
Sprinkle in the soap flakes, add boiling water, and stir. My job was to dry, but owing to Jack's unorthodox methods, I would end up having to use the dish towel to clean egg-encrusted forks. Now, I'm not actually sure that Jack was as happy-go-lucky as Bateman suggests, because he was originally a lumber camp cook. These characters, whom we learned about when chatting with Rory Mackay in episode 13 about life in a Cambu shanty in the late 1800s, were used to being the camp kingpin. In fact, as Roy Anderson, who shared a number of Jack Pigeon stories in both his 1977 interview with Ron Pittaway and in George Garland's Glimpses of Algonquin, Jack was a short, wiry fellow with stringy hair, a large, rather bulbous nose, and small, fierce eyes. He, quote, ruled the place like a combination of Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun. But he wasn't coarse and was completely intolerant of what he called racy talk when women were around. Many a student received a tongue lashing for a lack of delicacy in this matter. Boy, sure wish I could get away with doing that these days. I'm really tired of being called a dude, but I digress. Jack's cooking, like most cooks trained in the lumber camps, was plain, wholesome, and ample, and his kitchen was clean. In fact, immaculate, some had said. However, quote, anybody who complained or even presented a suspicion of a complaint was off Jack's books. He would come out and terrorize everybody. As Dr. Anderson reported, quote, Jack would look so funny standing up there slashing a knife around and shouting about backbiting and complaining bastards. Jack was also fond of, quote, reminding us students that though he'd never gotten through first book, he knew more than all of us put together. Though Jack imbibed a lot and smoked like a chimney, he was dedicated and considerate, and as a result was very concerned when the government of India sent a scientist to study Canada's methods in wildlife management. Unfortunately, Jack's homestyle cooking went against all of the visitors' fundamental dietary practices. After a few weeks, Jack started to get really concerned that the visitor was going to starve to death. As Dr. Anderson reported... Jack was a man who respected above all those whom he chose to call the good feeders, and he had never before confronted someone who was determined in the face of all blandishment to be otherwise. So concerned was Jack that he began to drink excessively and even took to staying up all night talking to himself. Mutual concern by all in camp was that the visitor was going to return home emaciated, and the cook was going to have some kind of alcoholic collapse. George, it turned out, was going to have to save the day. Now, it turns out that George was the name of a leghorn rooster that was being used for some of the experiments. Unfortunately, George wasn't a very good patient, and hence was eventually allowed to run free, and was becoming quite a nuisance. He not just crowed incessantly, but would also dart out of the forest with wings flapping and spurs flying and attack anyone who was close by. So the group decision was made that George would be sacrificed to the cook and Jack would give the visitor free reign of his kitchen. This was an incredibly generous offer and virtually unknown in the camp cook world for a camp cook to let somebody else be in their kitchen. The visitor then set to work to prepare a feast for the group, which ended up taking all day. Alas, it was quite remarkable that Jack survived the day at all, as according to Indian custom, every part of the rooster was used, not just selected parts as was the Canadian cultural norm at the time. As the day went on, Jack watched with, quote, incredulous dismay and consternation, the culinary skill of the temporary master of the kitchen. Every time a chicken part that Jack considered to be offensive was dropped into the giant cooking pot, Jack would take a swallow of whiskey that had been conveniently stashed in his teacup. By the time the meal was ready to be served, Jack had drained an entire bottle of whiskey. And when the pot came to the table, an odor of curry pervaded the place, with the proud visitor holding court at one end of the table, smiling ear to ear, 
with one of Jack's great white aprons tied around his middle. At the other end, Jack sat unshaven, hair disheveled, cheeks and nose scarlet, eyes streaked with red, and his head cupped in his hands. Of course, everyone but Jack found the meal to be quite delicious. Eventually, Jack fell asleep with his head resting on his arms, and the crew carried him to his cabin and tucked him into bed. The next morning, one presumes a little hungover, Jack suggested that, quote, maybe you boys would like another cook around here. I guess I've been in this camp too long. If you boys wanted a little spice in your food, you ought to have said so. I'm just a plain cook. Nothing fancy, you understand. Luckily, to everyone's relief, Jack stayed on and came back to cook for his camp full of students, professors, and others every summer, just about until the day he died. Robert Bateman also learned how to set trap lines, capture small mammals, and record and illustrate samples. He learned how to perform autopsies of deer that had been struck on the highway and the occasional bear looking for parasites. For those interested, his experience taught him that, quote, bears that frequented garbage dumps had no parasites, but did have in their stomachs much that didn't belong there, such as cigarette packs and dishcloths. Deer, on the other hand, were often thick with parasites. It seems that botflies would dive-bomb their nostrils and ears and lay their larvae there, and soon the deer's sinuses would be full of maggots. As Bateman said, the sound of the deer in the forest trying to get rid of the maggots would sound like dogs sneezing. Each of these tasks contributed to Bateman's understanding of wildlife and his ability to capture them in their naturalness and authenticity. As he wrote in 2015, quote, I cannot overstate the importance of those summers at the research station to my life as a naturalist, my development as a painter, even to my capacity for critical thinking. As I know from personal experience, having seen many of his works in a museum, his painting of the bison staring at us off the canvas, the lioness resting on the sandy grasses in Africa, the wolf eyeing us from around the corner of a rock face, an owl watching me from a tree branch, and my favorite, a polar bear resting against a large chunk of ice, are memorable images that are permanently etched in my mind, and in the case of the polar bear, mounted on my living room wall. Dr. C.H.D. Clark, whom I mentioned previously, was the major instigator in getting things going along with the help of a biology graduate and a collection of university and high school students. About six, I think. It seems that in order to conduct this kind of long-term research, it's really important to establish some sort of grid system so that the same specific research sites can be relocated and used every year for ongoing study. Which makes sense now that one thinks about it. The hope was that researchers would then be able to, quote, study the vegetation in the forest understory, as well as birds, small mammals, reptiles, amphibians, deer, ruffed grouse, beaver, including not just their food habits, but the kinds of parasites they lived with. This grid system, as paraphrased from Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, involved the establishing of a baseline with perpendicular lines that were blazed on the trees. Posts were set out every 20 chains or so. 20 chains represents about a quarter of a mile, which is equivalent to about 2,400 or so meters, and chains was a common distance measurement in those days. A base map was drawn up that illustrated not just the kind of forest vegetation, but also showed all the ground elevations. They also went so far as to count the number of tree species along specific strips of forest. The grid lines were also used as a way to conduct a bird census. As Robert Bateman shared in his 2015 autobiography, Life Sketches, quote, one of my most favorite tasks was doing a bird census. I would walk up and down the grid lines in the forest and either listen for or watch for species. The male scarlet tanager, for example, is a gorgeous bird with a blood-red body in high contrast to its black wings and tail. But because these birds prefer the high canopy, they're hard to spot, so I would have to listen for the call, like that of a robin with a sore throat. The rose-breasted grosbeak, another gorgeous bird with flashes of black, white, and red, sounds like a drunken robin. 
and the red-eyed vireo, an olive green and white songbird, and one of the most common birds of the eastern woodlands, also has a distinctive call. This bird sounds like it's in conversation with itself. Where are you? The first half goes, followed by, here I am. For those interested in hearing what those bird songs sound like, here's first the scarlet tanager, then the rose-breasted grosbeak, and then lastly the red-eyed vireo. Another story related to the needed precision of grid lines that also provides interesting insight into the character and personalities of the scientists comes from Dr. Roy Anderson, as recounted to Ron Pittaway in a 1977 interview. It was a story that Anderson had heard Diamond repeat many times to students while he was at the University of Toronto. I had gone to the wildlife research station looking for Duncan McClulick. I eventually found him lying on his back in what seemed to be the middle of the forest with a compass. I explained, What in heaven's name are you doing, Duncan? To which he replied that he was laying out his trap line for one of his hair studies. Apparently, it needed to be absolutely accurate, and being a statistician, he was making sure that everything was perfect, and that there wasn't a millimeter difference between the traps. Now, this need for absolute accuracy is a characteristic of most researchers that still abounds today. Which is why, of course, though I'm interested in the subject, I'm not a biologist. Though I did get as far as the end of a freshman introductory course at Queen's in the early 1970s. Now, I'm still not sure that I quite get the importance of studying parasites, but it was then and continues to be a big deal. As Patrick recently shared with me, a parasite is an organism that lives in or on another organism, called a host, and benefits by deriving nutrients at the other's expense. In the natural world, parasites affect how an ecosystem functions. For example, parasites and the possible diseases they spread can be responsible for population fluctuations of plants and animals, structuring of food webs, and nutrient cycling. Perhaps the most relatable examples of parasites include ticks, which can carry Lyme disease, and mosquitoes, which are vectors for malaria. It's estimated that at least half of all life on Earth are parasites. Parasitism is the most widespread way of making a living among organisms on Earth. Parasites and disease in wildlife is of fundamental importance to human health. Now, a disease that can be transmitted to humans from other animals is called a zoonotic disease. Look no further than COVID-19, a zoonotic disease that, based on the best available evidence, may have its origins in bats. Now, not for this episode, but worth mentioning, is concern to scientists that the degree to which SARS-CoV-2 virus is infecting the deer populations in North America and the extent to which deer could become a disease transmission vector back to humans is worth contemplating, but only after having a few beers. One interesting scientist, Dr. Murray Fallis, worked out of the Wildlife Research Center for over 30 years. Known as the father of Canadian parasitology, he was really interested in understanding the role of biting flies, including black flies and midgens, in transmitting severe blood-causing blood parasites in birds. He started with ruffed grouse, thinking that a certain species of black fly was the disease-carrying vector. His work mattered because of not just the implications for helping general wildlife, but also the degree to which it later helped influence understanding of disease transmission dynamics 
in animal agriculture, such as domesticated chickens, turkeys, and ducks. Apparently, according to the U.S. Agricultural Research Service, from 1942 to 1951, the estimated annual loss in the United States as a result of blood parasites in domestic turkeys was nearly $750,000, which today would be about $8 million U.S. today. Now, to me, what's interesting here is that as a result of his and other related research, the raising of domestic fowl, such as turkeys, was moved to poultry houses, which reduced disease instance because the vectors such as black flies and midges didn't like to venture inside those kinds of shelters. It'll be interesting to see if the growing movement to raising poultry outside again causes an increase in this type of disease again, because the last major USA outbreak was way back in the 1970s. According to those who knew him, Dr. Fallis was known to be, quote, thoughtful, caring, and generous, and an inspiring mentor who instilled in his students not only the fascination of research, but the value of leading moral and ethical lives. Boy, we sure don't hear that much anymore these days. The value of leading a moral and ethical life? What a generation those guys were. One of Dr. Fallis's early studies in the June of 1938 estimated that between, quote, four and 5,000 black flies emerged from a little less than one square meter of a stream on Costello Creek. Now, can you imagine that? Just the very idea has me shivering and scratching behind my ears. His black fly studies in Algonquin Park later led to him being invited to Africa to help researchers there use his techniques and information to study diseases that were of medical importance there. His role as a consultant for the World Health Organization helped influence practices not just in North America, but in countries all over the world. This work on black flies in Algonquin eventually became known the world over and made the Wildlife Research Station a household name in certain scientific communities. Another well-known blackfly researcher was Douglas Davies, who spent time in Algonquin Park from 1945 to the mid-50s and published over 35 research papers. Not only did he discover many new blackfly species, but he also in 1951 published observations of the number of blackflies landing on colored cloths, including light and dark versions of blue, red, etc., etc., Varying the intensity of the light reflected the cloth and, to a lesser extent, the wavelength, Davies was able to show that mosquitoes liked dark blue the best, followed by dark brown, black, dark green, dark red, medium gray, and white. So, all of you wearers of blue jeans with dark brown or black hoodies in May and June's black fly season, beware. Now, my personal experience has been that avoiding purple in the bush is a good idea, but for that belief, there is no scientific validation. Another story attributed to him as shared by Rory Mackay in Algonquin Park, a place like no other, was an interest he had in understanding just what black flies did once they emerged from an Algonquin stream. To study this, he drew a 7.6 centimeter, which was about three inch square of skin on his abdomen, and then lay down on the ground on his back with his head propped up. He then counted the number of black flies who came around in two-minute intervals. He would count how many were attracted to that area of skin, how many landed, how many just flew around, and how many actually bit him. Can you imagine? Not only did he do this once, but he did it over and over and over and over again and even went so far as to correlate the data he collected with humidity and atmospheric pressure data. The man must have been a beast for punishment. Or an obsessive eccentric, a characteristic that Norm Quinn suggests might be applicable to many a biologist. To spend hours in the spring, summer, and fall in all kinds of weather conditions, counting, observing, calculating, and speculating, requires a certain type of personality and a commitment that leaves me in awe. Since its inception, the Wildlife Research Center has generated nearly a thousand peer-reviewed research papers, 
and some 80 theses, as well as numerous book chapters and scientific reports. Many are based on a series of long-term studies that have been going on for decades, and some of these I'll talk about in future episodes. The small mammal study, for example, was initiated in 1952 and is the longest continuous small mammal live trapping population study in North America. The study of painted and snapping turtles, some elements of which I talked about in episode 22 on the fall colors, has been going on for 50 years, as has a, a study of Canada jays. A study of the salamanders and other amphibians has taken place on and off for decades, but was formalized into a continuous long-term study in 2008. Though primarily used for research, universities and colleges regularly use the station to stage summer field biology courses and the occasional conference. The ministry also hosts from time to time training sessions for its staff there. Many Canadian and international agencies, as I mentioned previously, send representatives to study there as well. As Dr. J. Bruce Falls wrote in a 1984 article, one really unique aspect has been that faculty and students live together in a natural environment, which encourages the exchange of ideas. The intellectual and a congenial atmosphere resulting from these associations is an important source of creativity. On that note, I hope you've enjoyed this initial introduction into the early history of the Algonquin Wildlife Research Station. In the next episode, I'm going to focus on a number of really interesting research projects and the researchers who have worked on them, along with more stories of their experiences. Don't forget that all of the books that I referenced here can be found on the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores or online. And note that information about my patron program and lots of pictures can be found on my website, Algonquin Park Heritage. And lastly, the Algonquin Park Wildlife Research Station is supported by user fees and donations. Don't forget to visit algonquinwrs.ca to learn more and offer your support for their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education.